Welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church on this the 30th of October 2022. Um, I hope some of you got a chance to lie in this morning. I think anybody who's got young children or dogs probably doesn't qualify for that, um, unfortunately, but I hope you uh, did get an extra hour's worth out of last night. Um, if you're a visitor here in the church, welcome to you. If you're a visitor listening in online, welcome to you too. To everybody else, a very good morning to you and welcome too. My name's Adrian. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Bankrupt Christian Fellowship, and it is my privilege and a responsibility to uh, lead this morning. We're here to worship God, aren't we? And we will do that through our singing, through our prayers. We will open God's word, and we're looking forward to this morning, uh, Duncan, our pastor, read, uh, opening up Ecclesiastes 11. And I think the title he's put up there is The Known Unknowns, which rather takes me back to work when they talked about the known knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown knowns and the unknown unknowns. And you go, well, oh, I'm so suitably um, confused already. I'm going to ask Fiery Black to come up now and give us the reading. It's from Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 to 8. Thank you, Fiery. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what, that, what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way, the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and the evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Well, let me also bid you a good morning and welcome. It's uh, lovely to have you with us, lovely to worship the Lord together, and let me encourage you to turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. It was more than 20 years ago now, in the days when the United States and the United Kingdom were trying to make a case for invading Iraq, that the U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was asked a question about the evidence that would support such a move. His now famous reply introduced us to some interesting terminology. He said, well, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. Known knowns, known unknowns, unknown unknowns. You have to pause for a little moment. It does actually make sense. Knowing what you don't know is important. 
It just turned out that they knew even less than they claimed to know. But with greater clarity than Don Rumsfeld 20 years ago, this part of the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that the only way we can navigate life successfully is by accepting there are things that we don't know. These verses in Ecclesiastes 11 are a lesson in living with the known unknowns, things we know that we don't know. It's actually an important theme for this book of the Bible, not just this this part of it. Uh, Ecclesiastes, um, it is the record of one man's search for the meaning of life. And throughout the book, the man identifies himself as the preacher, and he wonders, perhaps meaning in life is to be found in learning, or it's to be found in work, or to be found in pleasure, or sex, or building a legacy. And it just so happens the man who writes this book had all of the resources to try all of these things to the full. And he found that meaning and purpose for life was not achieved through those things. And he came to that conclusion because he saw that however much he went in for work or pleasure or learning or building, he could see that he was still going to die. And then all those things he was living for would be worth nothing. And so he's concluded in this book that life is vanity, vanity or meaningless. And what he means by that is that life is like a vapor, like the smoke from an extinguished candle. It's there for a short while. You can't grasp hold of it. And when it's gone, it disappears without a trace. More than that, this book of Ecclesiastes has shown us that uh, even in our short lives, we're not in control of our lives. The times and the seasons, they come, and you don't choose when they come. Only God does. No, there is this dark shadow of reality that lies over almost every part of this book of the Bible, and it is the shadow of death. The shortness of life and the definite end that death is. And the preacher, he takes time to show us these things, and this is now our 13th week looking at these things. He's shown us these things to help us to embrace the limitations of life and not waste our life by trying to fight against those limitations. You are not God, you are dependent upon God. And so live as one who is depending upon God. Recognize the limitations of life. Recognize that all the things that you have are a gift from God and live. Enjoy your food, your drink, your work, your relationships. Live wisely using those things to glorify God and there you will find true joy in life. There's our summary of what we've covered. But it's easier to say, isn't it? It's much easier to say, live wisely, than it is to do it. 
And that's where today in chapter 11 we're told that living wisely means living with the known unknowns, the things we know that we don't know. And they come to us here under two big categories. The first one is you do not know the future. You do not know the future. The way that this chapter opens, it could be slightly puzzling for us. They're quite well-known words, but I'm not sure if we're just quite sure what they mean. Cast, or maybe more literally, send out your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. I suppose the first puzzle is, what does he mean by those commands? I mean, that's what they are, commands. The preacher is urging us to boldly give out what belongs to us. He speaks of bread being sent out. He speaks of giving a portion to seven or even eight others. And I think there's a strong case that says, Casting your bread upon the waters is the idea of sending your goods overseas, investing what you have in some bold business venture. And after many days, still verse 1, after many days, it will return with profit. And so if if that second command in verse 2 is still in that business world, then it's the language of I suppose that you would say diversifying your investment. In other words, not putting all your eggs in one basket. Give your portions, spread it out so that when disaster comes, you won't lose everything. Whatever the specifics, you see that the call of the preacher here is to have a disposition that looks away from yourself sending things out, giving things out. There is a call here to live boldly, to live boldly, to be generous in giving, to send out your bread upon the waters and waiting many days before you see what comes back. We're going to come back later to what that might include, but you see the reason for doing it is because you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. You don't know what's around the corner. So look at how this develops in verses 3 and 4. This is what the preacher does really well throughout this book. He, he takes us to see a lived-out example. He takes us to the edge of a field. And there we are, standing, looking over the shoulder of a farmer. What's he doing? Well, he's looking up at the sky. And what does he see? The clouds are full of rain. What else does he see? He sees a tree that has fallen, and he's unsettled by the fact that he had no control over where the tree fell. We see the farmer, he he licks his finger, he puts it up to the air, observing the wind, verse 4. And having done all of that, what does the farmer do? He takes his bag of seed and he goes back inside. Look at verse 4 again. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds 
will not reap. The farmer, in his anxiousness to find the perfect time to sow his seed, he finds himself choosing not to sow. And we understand this, don't we? You can imagine him, well, what if it rains later today? What if there's high winds that might blow the seed away? There's just, there's just too many variables. It's, it's better not to sow, better not to take the risk. And it's not just farmers. How many of us live like this? Is this the time to switch jobs? Should I tell them that news now or wait for a better time? What if something goes wrong? Would we regret moving there? And here's the thing, you don't know the future. And how often have you found yourself paralyzed with the what ifs? Well, if we do that, what if, and what if, and what if? Ecclesiastes says there has to be and there is a better way. And the preacher says it starts by accepting the known unknowns in this world. Accepting that there are things that you do not know. Things that God hasn't given you the capacity to know which are therefore things you were designed to function fully without knowing. It's as if he's saying, despite the known unknowns, live, live. There's another unknown about the future that he mentions. You see it in verse 6. He says, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper this or that, or whether both alike will be good. He says, you don't know, not only do you not know the future, but specifically, you don't know what will succeed and what will fail. Now, let's not just nod at that verse. Think about it for a moment. He's saying, get on and do these things because you don't know whether it will succeed or fail. It's saying that the most important thing in your life is not actually whether things materially succeed or fail. That is not the most important thing. You see that implication there? He's saying you can't predict what will win or what will lose. The more important thing is that you live wisely, that you live well before God. And I think that is so hard for us to take in. So much of what we hear and so much of what we assume is that if I live wisely, then things will go well for me. But the preacher in Ecclesiastes has seen too much of the reality of life to let us think that that will always be the case. Too often he has seen people make all the right moves, take all the sensible precautions only for their plans to fall apart. Now, let's not hear this message wrong. He's not saying that life's decisions should be made without, without due diligence. Um, as much information as, is, as within your grasp, it's right to seek it out. Use the capacity for rational thought. Make good use of the common sense that God has given us in His common grace. This is no excuse for reckless living and decision-making. No, here he's saying what we all know to be true, that our wisdom has its limits. 
in pretty much every decision that you make in life, there is a chance that it will not go to plan. A chance that it's just not going to go well. And Ecclesiastes is saying, You've, we have got to accept that in such a way that it doesn't cripple us. Because the command here is to be bold in giving out your stuff, in giving yourself away. When so often the temptation, when we come to the end of our wisdom, when we cannot see what lies ahead, we want to do the opposite, don't we? We want to hold all our stuff tightly to ourselves. The risk of loss is just too great. Well, we're still not ready to think through what this might look like for us because there's a second category of known unknown here for us. Not only do we not know the future, look at verse 5. He says, you do not know how God works. You do not know how God works. This is why we can't predict the future. Because to do that accurately, we would need to have what God alone possesses. We would need to have all knowledge. We would need to have His omniscience. And here we are, and again, we're, we're given a picture to help us. Here we are, we're, we're left to stand in awe of God's work. There are many here this morning who've experienced exactly what the preacher describes in verse 5. Because this time, not to the, to the edge of the field, but he takes us to the maternity ward. And he says what so many of us have known, when you see your newborn child for the first time, there is something awe-inspiring about how this beautiful little girl has been fashioned together from a couple of microscopic cells somehow unseen to our eye, new life has been created. Something immeasurably precious has been brought into the world, and at first sight, it overwhelms us, doesn't it? How did that happen? Now, the preacher says, how you felt on that day. Hold that thought. He says, verse 5, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now, I don't want to distract from the point of the passage here. I say this as an aside. The Bible's view on life is that God is at work in the little one in the womb. The Spirit comes to the bones in the womb, is how the, the preacher here puts it. That is a human being that is in there, made in God's image, and it should be afforded all of the protections that any other human being should be. Anyway, this miracle that God does, unseen in the womb, it's a snapshot of what God is like. He is doing what only He can do. But only he has the foresight and wisdom and knowledge to do. Even with our now advanced knowledge of embryology, it has not removed the wonder of God's gift of life. 
there is still that sense when we see the newborn baby, we do not know how God does it. And in the same way, you don't know how God is at work in everything in the world. You don't know what God is doing in your life right now. Say your business fails. Say that relationship fails. Say that your child struggles. That doesn't necessarily mean that God disapproves of you. No, you don't know what God might be doing through that. Through his prophet Isaiah, God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And here's what's crucial. You don't know how God works, but you do know that He is working. And this is what is so crucial. Not just that we don't know how God is working. We don't know how God is weaving all of the pieces of the history of the world together. We can't see that, but we do know that He is working. We're not permitted to see all His workings. We're not given a running commentary on why this happens here and why that doesn't happen there. But we are given the crucial thing, the promise of where all of this life is heading. When the Apostle Paul reflected on some of the, the mysteries of what God is doing in salvation, he, 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 could only, he could only bow his head in worship, worshiping God, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And as we read the unfolding message of Scripture, we see that all of God's great purposes are wrapped up in a person, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's how he is described by Paul when he writes to the Colossians. He says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The Bible's understanding of the world around us is that the story of this world is actually the story of how God is working all things together for his own glory. It's telling us that there is coming a day when we will all look back on the history of the world and we will see how it is really the story of how God moves all things. He makes all things, He works all things together so that in Christ He would have 
the preeminence, the prominent place. In those words that Paul wrote, he says that the goal of all of history is that all things would find their place and their purpose when they are reconciled to God in Christ. And that language is important, isn't it? We only seek reconciliation where a relationship has been broken. And that is what we see in our world. We see this this disconnect. There is something that is out of harmony, something that is out of step. This world was created for human beings to live in, to thrive in, to worship God in. And yet there is something has entered in that has brought a disharmony. This is no longer the safe place to be. There are tragedies all around. There are, there are sinful actions that would cause human beings to be out of harmony with each other, but most crucially to be out of harmony with God. A relationship is broken and needs reconciled. And how does God do it? Well, through Jesus Christ who makes peace by the blood of his cross. This is the story of how God the Son looked upon the needs of a fallen world and he chose not to hold everything tight to himself but to give himself. Looked not to his own needs but to the needs of others. He gave himself to become a human being, to even give himself to die on a cross, where there he deals with that which has knocked everything out of harmony. It is Jesus Christ alone who can restore us to God, the only one who can bring forgiveness for our turned-in-on-ourselves way of living, and who will give us the Holy Spirit to turn us back out again, first and foremost to be turned outwards towards God, to live a life that glorifies Him, but also to be turned outwards to others, this vision that Ecclesiastes has, to be the one who who can send out our bread on the waters, who can give a portion to seven or to eight, to be turned outwards, to be generous, to live boldly, to live radically. Now, those are just, those are just buzzwords, really. You could put your own definition to them. What's more crucial for us is, what does the Bible say about this sort of thing? Listen to these words of Jesus in Matthew 6. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus' message is, is that hoarding, hoarding things here on earth is the way of decay. By using what God has given to invest in heavenly rewards, it is the way to have true treasure. 
And do you see what it is that drives that? He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is doing this not in some way of gaining some favor with God, but because we already know and love Him. Heaven is where God is. Heaven is where Christ is. And we want to invest there because that is where my heart is. This is the ultimate sending out your bread upon the waters and finding it again after many days in glory. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. Be someone who is ready to give yourself. This might mean opening yourself up to relationships. I mean, at times nothing terrifies us quite like letting someone else close to us. One of the ways that we give and send out our bread upon the waters is to get married, to have kids, to have more kids. These are ways that we give ourselves away, that we send out our investment. And though some of those things might make you poorer, might make you more stressed at times. When these things are done for the Lord, then there is a great investment. If you've been blessed with money, with belongings, then radical living as a Christian is not spending it on yourself, but investing it in kingdom work to give portions to seven or to eight. It is to be willing to forego the luxury holiday, to forego the car upgrade in order to do something that is of much greater value. Maybe that's helping to pay for someone to train for ministry. Maybe that's supporting mission at home, overseas, like we've been hearing about today. This is what it is to be turned outwards. If you've been blessed with time, well, here's what it is to be generous with that time is to give it to serving others, others in your church family, others in your community. If you've been blessed with a job, then work at it as though you're working for the Lord. Sure, look for the promotions, look for the changes that will enable you to better honor the Lord and be ready to turn down the opportunities that will mean that you're less able to honor Him. If you've been blessed with a home, then bold self-giving is using what God has given you to bless others. More important than my comfort is to be turned towards other people. How can I give a portion to seven or even to eight? If you've been blessed with friends, to want to share with them the reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ is the greatest, most significant act of friendship that we can ever give. And all of this is held together with these known unknowns in Ecclesiastes 11. You don't know. Some things won't work out as you'd hoped. But you know that God is at work even in such things. You don't know what He might be doing through you for others, through others in you, as you give yourself for Him. 
As we conclude, I need to look at verses 7 and 8. The preacher says, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. This has really been the preacher's message throughout this whole book. He's saying that life is short, but life is joyful when lived, knowing God, when using what God has given to honor Him. It is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. It is great to be alive, he says. It is a blessing to be alive. And you may live many years, verse 8, rejoice in every one of them. But here is the certainty. The days of darkness will come and will be many. He's speaking about death again. Live now, live abundantly, honor God in your life, because death is coming. This is your only chance to do this. This is your only chance to use those material things This is the only chance you have to use this life that God has given to honor Him in this way. We do see this sort of thing in one of the parables that Jesus told. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of a wealthy man who has to to go away on a trip. And before doing so, he gives three of his servants large sums of money. He gives them talents. A talent, they think, was about 20 years' wages. So so not an insignificant amount. And he gives one of his servants five talents, another servant two talents, and a third servant he gives one talent. And he is, in effect, entrusting them with his estate. While he's away, look after this. So the one with the five talents, he sets about. He, He trades, he buys, he sells. And in the end, he doubles his money. Now he's got 10 talents. The guy with two talents, he does the same. He doubles his money. But the servant with one talent, he chooses to do something else. He buries it in the ground. You see, the risk is just too great. If I try and, if I try and invest this, I could lose it, so I'm going to bury it in the ground. It's safe there. Well, when the master returns, the servants come and he settles up. Those who put the money to work and profited, they were rewarded. But the one who buried the money... Listen to what he says. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. The master rebukes him as wicked, lazy, and says this, take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus tells this parable because he wants people to be ready for when he returns. It's a run of parables with that same kind of theme. And I suppose as we relate it to what we've read in Ecclesiastes 11, it is to say how people live their lives matters. 
What you do with what you've been given matters. And so here we're called to be turned outwards. The first and most significant turning outwards is to be turned towards God. I want to make that as clear as I can today. I'm not here to give you lessons on how to have a happier Monday to Saturday. If you've not got this in place, that you are first turned towards God, then all of the life changes in the world won't make a difference because here's what lies at the heart of our problem as human beings is that we don't know God. We have a broken relationship with God. We need to be turned back towards Him. And that is why He sent His Son, that we might be reconciled. I want to call on you today. You need to trust Jesus Christ. You need to trust Jesus Christ. Maybe you are convicted about your lack of generosity, about your, 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 how paralyzed you are by the what-ifs day in, day out. Take that conviction and come to Christ and trust in Him. Be restored to God. Because it's only then that we truly are freed to give. There's an old hymn by um, Isaac Watts, I think, that reflects on the death of Christ for him. And he says, drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here would I give myself away. It's all that I can do. This is the first great giving away, is to give yourself to God through faith in Christ. And then to seek to honor him with all that he's given you. So what will that look like for you? You don't know the future. You don't know what will succeed or fail. You don't know what God is doing in the world. But you do know that he is doing something. That he is working all things together for his glory. And if you belong to him for your good. So go. Go cast your bread upon the waters. Go, give a portion to seven or to eight. Let us be a people who are generous-hearted because we have received the most generous gift of all in Christ. Amen. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.